Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Well, it is great to be with you all this morning, and I am profoundly grateful for Dr. Aiken and Dr. Whitfield and others for the invitation uh, to open up God's Word with you today. You know, I have, as a student, a former student, and as a current student, have been immensely blessed by this seminary, uh, by the teaching and instruction that I've received here. But, but more than that, the thing that has most blessed me, I think, as a student has been the incredible faculty that God has brought to Southeastern Seminary and the incredible investment that they make, their approachability, their availability, and the way that they pour into us um, in order to see us thriving um, in the roles that God has called us to. And for that, I am profoundly grateful. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 8, and we're going to focus our attention on a well-known passage of scripture found in verses 31 to 38. This passage, as most of you know, begins what is called the Great Discipleship Discourse, where on three different occasions over the next three chapters in Mark, in Mark 8 and Mark 9 and Mark 10, we see on three different occasions Jesus explicitly teaching his disciples about his intentional plan to suffer and die and to rise again from the grave three days later. And in addition to that, he is also confronting their misguided understanding of what it means for him to be the Messiah and to truly follow him. And so as we consider our text this morning, my prayer is really quite simple. My prayer is first that our eyes would be fixed upon Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised its shame and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. But as we consider this text that is likely familiar to you, my one idea, my one thought that I want to share with you is simply this. Following Jesus demands your life. But brothers and sisters, he is worth it. Following Jesus demands your life, but he is worth it. Let's look together at what the scripture says in Mark 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me... And of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. So let's pray together and ask the Spirit of the living God to speak to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Father, for this sacred moment that we have together as brothers and sisters in Christ to gather around 
your word. And Father, as we open your word, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would have great freedom to convict, to challenge, to change us. Father, as we study your word, I pray that you would give us the very faith we need to be obedient to do all that you are calling us to do. And that by faith, Lord, we would align our lives to yours. And Father, we would fulfill all that you are calling us to do for your glory and for your honor and for your fame. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us now. Lord, I pray that you would do immeasurably more than I even know how to ask or imagine. Father, for your name's sake, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we jump into the text here, let me remind you of the one main idea. And the main idea is simply this, that following Jesus demands your life, but he is worth it. It demands your life. And he is worth it. And in just a moment, I want to share with you from the text what I believe it means that Jesus demands our life. And I want to share with you two reasons why I think we see here from Jesus' own words why it's worth it for us. But before we do that, I want to take a few minutes to set the context and to remind you that up until this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been teaching, he's been performing miracles, he's been proving himself to be the Messiah, the promised king. But as we're going to see in chapter 8, the disciples have obviously yet to fully grasp what that means. In fact, as we walk all through chapter 8, we kind of see this same thread being pulled that they just have yet to really get it. We know that in verses 1 through 10 of Mark 8, we see the feeding of the 4,000 where Jesus performs this incredible miracle at the end of which they have collected literally basketfuls of leftovers. Then in Mark 11 to 13, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees who are demanding another sign and they get in the boat and they leave to the other side of the lake. And there in Mark 8 verses 14 through 22, we find what is this incredibly sad and somewhat challenging passage of scripture as we look and we see Jesus there on the boat with his disciples and he's teaching them and he's warning them about the Pharisees. He's warning them about the leaven of the Pharisees, but when we look at the disciples and what they're doing, they're sitting around wondering what they're going to eat. They're wondering, where are we going to get bread to eat? And Jesus looks at them with this exasperated look on his face like, really? You know, have you ever had, like, when you've done something as a child and your parents look at you with that look of like, really? Like, that's one of the dumbest things you've ever said or done. I can imagine Jesus sitting there on the boat as they're questioning themselves, gosh, we only have one loaf of bread. Jesus looking at them going, do you not remember just what happened? Just that I fed 4,000 people and we saw this miraculous thing happen and yet you're concerned about whether we're gonna have enough to eat. Are you not aware of whose presence you are actually in? I think about it like this with my son, Alex, who is 12 years old. And Alex is autistic, and so he's in a special needs class, and Alex is gonna live with us for the rest of his life. He's just cognitively, doesn't have the ability to reason and rationalize things well, and so while he's 12 years old, he's really just five or six cognitively. And whenever we take Alex out to eat, regardless of where we go, he asks for the same thing. He wants chicken, french fries, and lemonade. Alex, what do you want to eat? Daddy, chicken, french fried lemonade. Chicken, french fried lemonade. We could go to the Angus barn and have a steak sitting in front of us that is unbelievable. And Alex would look at that and go, Daddy, 
I don't want that. Give me chicken, french fries, and lemonade. And sometimes I want to look at him and go, Alex, there is so much more than chicken, french fries, and lemonade. But he can't see it. He doesn't get it. He's in the presence of great food, but all he wants is chicken, french fries, and lemonade. And I think about it like this. Here are the disciples in the presence of Christ who's just performed these miracles, and they just can't see who he is and what he has come to do. We see that further in Mark 8, 22 to 26, where Jesus heals the blind man at Bethsaida, right? And it's the only place, this is the only place in the Gospels where we see a two-phased healing of a person. So Jesus touches his eyes, and he can begin to see, but things are still blurry. He says men still look like trees. And so Jesus heals him fully, and he finally begins to see why. Why is it recorded that way? Why did Jesus do it that way? Well, I believe he's helping us to see the progression of sight that is coming to his disciples. They're beginning to see, but they don't see clearly just yet. And further still, we come to verses 27 to 29 as he opens their eyes to his greater purposes. He's going to do so. He presses in by asking them what is one of the most important questions anyone, including us, can ask. And Jesus looks at him and says, who do you say, or first, who do others say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And you know, what's interesting is that while all of these answers that they give reflect an inadequate view of Christ, we're clued in that Jesus is mostly viewed in a positive light by those he encountered. However, to view him positively, right, is not the same as to surrender to him as Messiah. They acknowledge that there is something unique about him while denying the fact that he is indeed the Messiah. So Jesus leans in and he asks his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him and he said, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one. And we have to hear everything that is wrapped up in this statement from Peter, right? Let's not miss what he's saying. He's saying, Jesus, look, you're not just a great teacher or a prophet or a moral leader. You're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. You're the King of Kings. You're the one who's going to come and make all things right. And what does Jesus do? He affirms him. He's like, Peter, you're exactly right, but let me tell you what that really means. And what Jesus says next shakes Peter and the other disciples to the core. Look with me at verse 31. He says, and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Listen, we know that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He will make all things right in the world, but it's not going to be in the way that his disciples think, right? 
He's not come as the powerful warrior or the political savior to establish Israel's dominance in the world. Jesus begins to pull back the curtain for his disciples and tells them that the Messiah, who they thought was coming in power, must first suffer, be rejected and killed, and on the third day, rise again. Listen, if you take notes in your Bible, if you write in your Bible, I want you to circle and underline, star, whatever you have to do, the word must. Jesus must suffer and die. He must go to the cross. And while we read that word and when we read that word, we begin to understand and see clearly that this is not some random occurrence, that this is the intentional plan of God coming from the lips of the Messiah, seeing, saying the Messiah must suffer and die. And when we read those two words, it ought to conjure up in us two incredibly important things. One, it ought to remind us of the depth and depravity of our sin. It ought to remind us of what Paul would write in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, that we were dead in the trespasses in our sin, of our sin, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, living in the passions of our flesh, being by nature children of wrath and deserving eternal separation from God. When you read that word must, you ought to see it was my sin that Jesus was paying for on the cross. And he must suffer and die. But it also raises a second question for us, right? We think about it. It reminds us of our sin. But it also causes us to ask the question, but why must he suffer? Why must he die? I mean, why can't Jesus just kind of wipe the slate clean and just say, you know what? I forgive you. Listen, I want us to be ever mindful of this truth. That true forgiveness always, listen, always involves costly suffering. True forgiveness always involves costly suffering. Like you can see that on an economic level, right? If, if you owe me $100 and I choose to forgive you your debt, who incurs the cost of that? I do. I suffer the loss of that $100. And you're, you're just blessed with it, but I suffer the loss of it in the lack of your repayment. So that's on one hand, we think about it financially and that makes sense for us. But think about how difficult it is to forgive someone who has committed a real evil against you. They've abandoned you, they've abused you, they've betrayed you, they've slandered you. Think about that for just a moment. When you experience that kind of evil, you have two choices, right? You can either seek to exact vengeance on them to make them try to feel what you feel in that, or you can forgive them. And to forgive them means that you, as the one who has been sinned against, incurs the suffering of that. I love how Tim Keller said it. He said it this way. However, to refrain from lashing out at someone when you want to do so with all your being is agony. It's a form of suffering. You not only suffer the original loss of happiness, reputation, and opportunity, but now you forego the consolation of afflicting the same on them. You are absorbing the debt, taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out on the other person. And it hurts terribly 
Many people would say it even feels like a kind of death. Do you feel it? A couple of summers ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Poland uh, to speak to some of our missionaries who were serving in some of the world's hardest places. And while we were in Poland, we had the opportunity one afternoon to go to Auschwitz and Birkenau concentration camps. And it's hard for me to begin to put into words kind of the horror of that, of seeing that firsthand. To walk into the gates and to walk into these rooms where, they've, where you see kind of the, the unbelievable, the unbelievable hatred, the unbelievable just sin that is there. To see the mounds of hair that were shaved from the Jewish men and women and children to see stacks of eyeglasses and suitcases and personal belongings, to see piles and piles of canisters that held the poisonous gas that were dropped into the gas chambers, all this at Auschwitz, and then to drive over to Birkenau. And I was overwhelmed by how huge it was, that acre after acre you saw where these barracks were built for the strongest and gas chambers that were built for the weakest. And you see how they were put in there and how they were abused and how they were just treated just unbelievably horribly. Well, while in Poland, we realized that there was a Holocaust survivor staying at our hotel. By the, her name was Mrs. Eva Kor. And Mrs. Kor had an identical twin sister. And in 1944, her parents... And her two older sisters, her mother and her father, along with her twin sister, were taken on a train car into Birkenau and then into Auschwitz. And she tells the story how within 30 minutes, within 30 minutes, her father, her two sisters were taken from her. And the last memory she has of her mother is being ripped out of her mother's arms and her mother being taken away from her. And within 30 minutes of them arriving, they were on their way to the gas chambers. Now, what's fascinating is Mrs. Kaur and her identical twin sister, they were taken and they were put under the leadership of Dr. Mengele, who was known as the angel of death. And Dr. Mengele would take these Jewish identical twins and he would perform all sorts of experiments on them in order to try to figure out how, figure out how they could populate and make stronger the Aryan race. And so all these horrible things were done to these two precious little girls. But what's fascinating is that they survived. And in 1945, the Soviets obviously came in and they, um, they freed all of those who were in Auschwitz and Birkenau. But what's fascinating to me about her story is that 50 years after the liberation of the camps by the Soviets in 1945, Mrs. Kaur had the opportunity to meet another one of the doctors who was at Auschwitz, a man by the name of Dr. Munch. And Dr. Munch was one of the ones who signed the death certificates while at Auschwitz. And she was able to meet with him and to be in his presence. And after 50 years, she forgave him. She wrote a letter, which many other Holocaust survivors hated her for, for the indecencies and all the incredibly horrific things that were perpetuated against the Jewish people. They hated her for it. But she forgave her, and when she forgave him, think about that. Think about what she has to incur on herself in order to forgive him. And that 
is suffering. That is costly. Now you think about it in that scope, right? It's hard for me to imagine how difficult it was for a Holocaust survivor to forgive the ones who were signing the death certificates of their mother and father and two older sisters. You think about that. If we experience this kind of suffering in our earthly relationships, think about how infinitely greater the suffering must be for Christ to bear our sin. Wronging a finite person, right, demands a finite punishment, but wronging God who is infinite in worth is cosmic treason. So to truly forgive us meant that he must suffer. So on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place. And this, listen, brothers and sisters, ought to drive us to worship him. The price that he paid was great and Jesus paid it. He was betrayed and beaten and spat upon and mocked and tortured and killed all that we might know him and all that he might satisfy the wrath of a holy God towards sinners like us. That's why we can sing, hallelujah, what a savior. I was a prisoner, but now I'm not. With your blood, you bought my freedom. Hallelujah for the cross. And yet... As we see in the text, this still doesn't sit well with the disciples. Look with me at verse 32. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. When Peter hears this, He takes Jesus and he pulls him aside. And you can almost see this, right? He says, enough's enough, man. Quit talking like this. Peter rebukes him. The word rebuke here, it carries with it the same idea as when they would cast out demons, to rebuke demons. It's that kind of strength. It's that kind of intensity that Peter is coming to Jesus with. He's saying, quit talking like this. Surely not the Messiah must suffer and die. And what does Jesus do? Jesus is going to have none of it. And so he turns around and he looks at the disciples because they need to hear what Jesus is about to say as well. And he rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. You want to talk about having a bad day? That's a bad day for Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He wants Peter to know Peter. The Messiah must suffer, must die, and will rise again. But even further, listen, Jesus wants Peter to see that the cross is the way for every disciple of Jesus. It's the way for every disciple of Jesus. So I want to share with you a couple of I want to share with you two things I think it means for us to follow Christ. When we say following Christ demands our life, here are two things that I think it means. Number one, it means a life of self-denial. It means a life of self-denial. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him what? Let him deny himself. Now listen, let's be clear Jesus isn't talking about denying yourself in the sense of learning to go without something or maybe even many things. He's not talking here about asceticism. Rather, to deny oneself 
is to no longer live for self, which is naturally what every single one of us are hardwired to do, to live for ourselves. Probably like you, one of my favorite authors is Paul David Tripp, who said this, as a sinner, my whole life is inward focused. It's all about me. As a sinner, I push myself to the center of my world. As a sinner, I worship my own glory. As a sinner, I want to set my own rules. As a sinner, I reduce the world down to what I want and what I feel and what I think I need. So to deny yourself means that you no longer live at the center of it all. It's to come to that place where you're praying like Jesus God, not my will, but yours be done. It's to say, God, I want your will for my marriage. So let me deny myself and serve my spouse, even when he or she may not deserve it. God, I want your will for my singleness. So let me deny myself and trust you with my future. God, I want your will for my money. So let me deny myself and use my resources, not for myself, but for the advancement of the kingdom. God, I want your will for my sexuality. So let me deny myself in order to pursue holiness and to be conformed into your image. And for all of us here in ministry and those who are pursuing ministry, let me say a specific word to you. It's to say, God, I want your will for my ministry. It's to say, God, I'm willing to go wherever, do whatever, and whenever you call me to it. And I think while that is easy to say, that is much more difficult to actually do. It's laying down for us a worldly view of ministry success and embracing a biblical vision of what it means to faithfully lead and shepherd and care in the local church. One of the my favorite books that I've read on just the pastoral ministry and what it looks like to be a faithful shepherd is a little book by Zach S. Wine. It's called The Imperfect Pastor. And in this book, he said something that is so profound and so true, and I want to challenge you with it. He said, sis, as you enter ministry, you are going to be tempted to orient your desires toward doing large things in famous ways as fast as you can and as efficiently as you can. But take note, a crossroads waits for you. Jesus is that crossroads. Listen, he wrote this, because almost anything in life that truly matters will require you to do small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time with him. The pastoral vocation, because it focuses on helping people cultivate what truly matters, is therefore no exception. The things in ministry that matter most will require you to do the slow and the ordinary and the mundane things with the people of God over a long period of time. But our hearts are wired to do things as big and as fast and as famously as we possibly can. To faithfully shepherd the flock that is among you means that you will know and lead and feed and protect the sheep, and you can't microwave that. That takes a long period of time. 
It's true in your own life as you grow to be a, a follower of Jesus. You, you, we talk about Eugene Peterson and, and his statement, it's a long obedience in the same direction. That's what faithful ministry looks like. Faithfully doing the slow and the ordinary and the mundane things with the people of God over a long period of time. So following Jesus demands your life and it means laying down a worldly vision of ministry success and picking up this bit mantle that says, this is what faithfulness looks like. So God, if I'm going to aspire for anything, let me aspire for that which is ordinary. Let me aspire for that which is lowly. To have a heart like David in Psalm 131, where he said, Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Spurgeon would talk about how in that verse, David is saying, Listen, help me not to desire things that are greater than my capacity. Help me to aspire to be faithful. And Spurgeon ended his quote on that saying, Lord, keep us lowly. Keep us lowly and humble and faithful to do the slow and the ordinary and the mundane things with Jesus over a long period of time. Bend your vision of what success looks like to what the scriptures call us to do. So it's a life of self-denial. But secondly, I want you to see it's a life of sacrifice. Jesus says that in addition to self-denial, there must be sacrifice. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So we know that in Jesus' day, right, the cross symbolized the most barbaric form of punishment and persecution handed down by the Roman government. So when we think about taking up our cross, we can't equate it to like inconveniences or irritations. To take up our cross is to be willing to sacrifice everything, including our very lives, to follow hard after Jesus. I shared with you that I was in Poland with these missionaries, and on a couple of different occasions, they had those who had served on the field for over 25 years stand up and talk about their ministry experience, and to hear them share about how the sacrifices that they were making to make King Jesus look beautiful was humbling. They talked about living without, without indoor plumbing, how they often had no electric, electricity with temperatures over 100 degrees, how hard it was to send their kids off to college back in the States who had only lived in international contexts, knowing that they would have limited contact with them for years. They talked about, one of them talked about how their son died there on the field and how painful and difficult it was. They talked about experiencing persecution and lockdowns and sicknesses. And we sit and we often say, these are our heroes. But when you say that to them, you quickly learn that they hate that term. Why? Why do they hate that term? I'll tell you why. Because that's what it looks like to take up your cross. It's to say, God, I'm willing to go wherever you call me to go. I'm willing to do whatever you call me to do. I'm willing to lay down my life for you. Listen, friends, following Jesus demands our lives, but he is worth it. He is worth it. Let me give you two reasons quickly from the text as to why Jesus is worth it. First, he's worth it because it's only when you lay down your life that you find your He's worth it because it's only when you lay down your life that you find your life. Look with me at verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? 
One way to think about this when you read the word life here is to think about life like your identity. Jesus is saying, if you build your identity on the things of this world, you're ultimately gonna lose yourself. Because all of us, Christians included, pastors, leaders, ministers in the church included, all of us seek to live for something that we're convinced that would make life worth living. And we do everything in our power to achieve it. I can tell you, it's embarrassing, but it's true. I can tell you that one of my deepest sin struggles is that I am a people pleaser. And I know that on the surface, sometimes people pleasing looks like humility. Sometimes people pleasing looks like, oh, you're really caring. You really care about people. But sometimes when I really examine my heart, I realize that that people pleasing is just wanting to control things. It's just wanting people to think well of me. It's just wanting to be puffed up by what people say and how people experience my leadership. And so it's not really honoring to the God. It's wicked, it's corrupt, and it's seeking to build the kingdom of will. All of us live for something. All of us live for something that we think, man, life would be worth living if I had this. I love how Keller talks about this. He says, no matter how much these things you gain, they won't lead you to be sure of who you are. Because if they're threatened or worse still taken away, your identity is going to be stripped away. If I lose the approval of people, my identity is stripped. But even if you gain them, death is imminent and they won't go with you. That's why Jesus is saying, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? I was reminded after watching Tom Brady win his 57th Super Bowl as a 138-year-old man recently. I was reminded in 2005, he sat down for a 60 Minutes interview. He was 27 years old. He He had won three Super Bowls at that time. And he said to the interviewer, he says, listen, there has to be more to life than this. I'm 27. I'm married to a supermodel. I've won three Super Bowls. Surely there's more to life than this. I've done it all. Surely there is. That's what Jesus is saying here. What, what would, could you gain that would be worth the loss of your soul for all of eternity? And the answer is resounding nothing. There's nothing you could gain. That's why I believe Augustine wrote the words, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. It's only in him. It's in him that we find our life. It's only in him that we're fully satisfied because we were made and created for him and to live for him. Which leads me to the second reason, and I must be quick here. And that is because of the promise of an eternity with Jesus. And I'm not talking just about an eternity where you get whatever you want. No, an eternity with Jesus, where Jesus is the reward. Following him is worth it because we get him both now and in eternity. That's why he would say, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with his holy angels. If we're ashamed of Christ, And he's not talking about here those lapses of judgment and those times where you're fearful and you don't share your faith as aggressively as you should. He's talking about something much different. He says, listen, if you're ashamed of Christ, then upon his return, he will be ashamed of us. He'll give us over to what we desire most, which is ourselves. 
and the holy God is right to judge. But if that is the case, the opposite must also be true. If we're not ashamed of him, if we love being with him, if I love being with Jesus more than I even love like I'm being with my wife and my kids, if I love to identify with him, if we unite our lives with him, denying ourselves and taking up our cross, then as Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, his death becomes our death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. And it will have been worth it. That's what Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's understanding that all the beauty and all the love and all the joy that we see in this world are just a glimpse of what is to come with Jesus. In 2000, my father called me up. He said, Will, I've got a question for you. He said, I need you to drive down to South Carolina. I need to ask you. I'm like, well, Dad, that's three hours away. Can you just ask me over the phone? He's like, like, no, you got to come home. So I packed up our daughter at the time. We drove home, and my father looked at me, and he said, listen, in six months, I'm taking a trip to Ireland, and I'm going to go and play six different golf courses over seven days. And he said, I just wanted you to know, I just wanted to know if you wanted to go with me. I was like, well, Dad, let me pray about that. Yes, I'd love to go with you. <laughs> so six months later, hopped on a plane with my dad and some, some of his business friends and guys we worked with, and we went to Ireland for seven days. Played six of the most beautiful golf courses in the world. And I know some of y'all don't play golf. You probably don't care about that, but here's what I want you to know. Coming home and reflecting on that, it was fantastic. It was unbelievable. But I'm sitting there in the plane with my father, and it hits me. The blessing was not that my father could take me to Ireland to play golf. What was the blessing? The blessing was my father. The blessing was him. See, it's not just what Jesus can do for you. For surely he can save you, and he's redeemed you, and he has done that. But the reward is him. It's him. And that's the promise. Him. Eternity with him. Following Jesus demands your life. Self-denial. Sacrifice. But he is worth it. He is worth it. For there you find life. You find the one, the giver of life. You find him. So what do you, what do you need to be laying down? What do you need to be sacrificing right now to follow Christ and to experience the fullness of life that he has for you. Let's pray together. God, we love you and we thank you for your goodness and grace. Father, I thank you, Lord, that when I was dead in my sins, you were rich in mercy towards us. Oh God, I thank you that when I see my sin, I see that you were also willing to lay down your life and suffer, and it was costly. It cost you your life. Oh, God, you're worthy of our lives. So, Father, let us live lives of self-denial. Let us live lives of sacrifice that we might make famous the name of Jesus and we might experience the fullness of life that you have for us for your glory and for your honor and for your praise, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, 
visit scbts.edu.